time in the back. Uh, If you're remaining with us, I'd encourage you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can follow along uh, in the screens or in, on your bullet, in your bulletin as well. Um, I remember years ago, uh, I read an article uh, about something that's called the diurnal cycle. I don't know if you've ever uh, heard of this before, uh, but a diurnal cycle is something or a pattern that repeats itself over every 24 hours. And so we see lots of things in nature repeating itself over 24 hours. But the article said how uh, we as people, our bodies, become accustomed to this diurnal cycle, and we fall into certain patterns and habits even in our bodies as well. And for many, it comes in the form of a work and rest pattern, and everybody's sort of diurnal cycle is a little bit different. I don't know about you, but for me, I'm a morning person. I wake up, I like to exercise, and then I go to work, and I feel that that my most productive hours working tend to be my first three or four hours of the day. Um, But the afternoon hours for me are the hard ones. Those are the brutal ones. In fact, uh, one year as a joke, my kids uh, bought me a little pillow that says something like, everybody loves to nap. And they said, Dad, you should take this to your office when you tend to nod off in the afternoons. So maybe you're like me. Those, Those afternoon hours are tough. Uh, a couple semesters, I've had to teach classes after lunch, and I know that, that not only is it hard for me as a professor, but it's also hard for the students as well. Those hours can be brutal. If you're like me, you know what I'm talking about. Those hours are tough. You can feel listless. You can feel really tired. You feel like that sloth if you've ever watched the nature shows. You're just wandering on a speed that's a little slower than everybody else. And you tend to just try to survive those hours, and there's not a whole lot of productivity to your life. People call these the afternoon blahs. Maybe that's uh, something that, that you can resonate with. I want you to think about that as we come to our passage this morning. Uh, if you've been with us, we've been looking at how God meets people in the wilderness. Uh, the wilderness can be something that is uh, circumstantial, it can be something that is physical, but one of the things that we see throughout the scriptures is that God's people tend to get cast into the wilderness and then God meets them there in unique ways. Uh, we looked at the story of Hagar and Ishmael and how they were cast into the desert because of the circumstances of their lives and how God met them, God saw their need, and he came to them making all sorts of promises. We looked at the story of Jacob and how he was cast into the wilderness and had this midnight wrestling match with the angel of the Lord. He struggled with God in the wilderness and he succeeded because he refused to let go of God. So one of the things that we've looked at is that God meets people in the wilderness. Sometimes they're circumstantial wildernesses, sometimes physical, sometimes spiritual, but God meets people in the wilderness. But what I'd like us to consider this morning is this. What if our wilderness period isn't necessarily due to something that is circumstantial or something that's physical, something that's happened to us, But what if the wilderness for us is more like one long afternoon blah? One long afternoon blah. What if it's just an extended time where we just tend to sleep through life? What if it's characterized by maybe a a spiritual or an emotional lack of productivity? How does God meet us 
in that kind of wilderness. To answer that question, we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 3, and I'm going to read the entirety of Exodus chapter 3. You just heard a part of that story in the kids' story this morning, but I'm going to read uh, Exodus 3, verses 1 to 22. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and you shall be the sign, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say, to this, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. 
So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this gift of worship, the chance to, to gather on a Sunday morning to sing songs, to, to, to affirm our faith, to listen to the Psalms, to pray for our city. Father, all these elements of worship conspire to help us uh, see your greatness and your wonder. But Father, we pray that as we reflect on your word over the next few minutes that we would be able to hear your voice this morning, that you would take words written thousands and thousands of years ago and help us to see how they are relevant for every single second of our day, even the most intimate parts of our lives. So may your spirit come and do that for us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. The ancient Greeks uh, used to talk about a vice uh, that they called acedia. Maybe you've heard it before. Uh, If you're starting to think about it in the modern equivalent, you might think about the word apathy. Uh, It's a state of listlessness, a, a state of stupor that is related to one's position and one's condition in the world. We don't feel a whole lot of pain, nor do we feel a whole lot of pleasure or a lot of care. We just sort of go through life in a vanilla existence. Uh, The medieval monastics, hundreds of years later, picked up this idea of acedia, and they used it to describe a spiritual condition. It's a spiritual condition in which we're sort of apathetic or listless when it comes to our own individual spiritual lives. Uh, Chaucer, if you remember that from your literature classes, Chaucer said that acedia is one of the most dangerous vices for people of faith. Huxley called it the noonday demon. I'm sure all of us, if we are a person of faith, has been there at some point before. It's a place where we feel sort of apathetic or half-hearted in our emotions, in our spiritual lives. We sleepwalk through our spiritual health, never really progressing, never really being productive with our faith. And it's a period almost in which we enjoy all the benefits of the gospel, but we're really unwilling to be an instrument of the gospel. This really is nothing new. If you turn to the book of Revelation, you'll read in the first couple chapters a letter to the church of Laodicea, and they had this problem. And that's why Jesus came to them and said, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Those are pretty harsh words from the Lord. Later in that letter, Jesus says to these Christians, repent, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Stand at the door and knock. I have to imagine that Moses, the main character of our story this morning, that Moses was in that boat at this point in his life. And he was in that boat when God brought him a theophany, what theologians call a theophany, God in the form of a burning bush. And in so doing, God was knocking on the door of his life. If you know the Moses story at all, you'll know it's pretty familiar. We've made movies out of it and all that. 
Moses was miraculously rescued as a child and brought up, reared in the home of Pharaoh, and that probably meant he lived a life of privilege and luxury while his own people, the Hebrews, were suffering, suffering brutally at the hands of Pharaoh. And then at one point in Moses' life, we don't know exactly why, but he came more aware of his heritage and the fact that his own people were suffering. And one day he saw a Hebrew that was being beaten by an Egyptian and it angered him, it made him furious. And so he steps in and he kills the Egyptians in a fit of anger. Immediately he tries to bury the body in the sand. He wants to cover it up, hoping nobody could see it. He can hide what he had done, but people had seen. They now knew that Moses was a murderer, and that fact was known by the Egyptians and by the Hebrews. Everybody knew what he had done, and so Moses did the very thing that a lot of people do. He ran away. (laughs) Moses ran away into the wilderness. He becomes a fugitive, running from the consequences of his own life, running from the consequences of his past. And he had to imagine that he could never return home, never return home to his family, everything that he had known. And if he did, he would certainly have to face the consequences for what he had done. So Moses flees into the wilderness. And for decades, he lives in this wilderness, and a lot happens to Moses while he's there. It says he takes up residence with uh, the Midianites, which is a a nomadic people group with undefinable boundaries and, and sort of different religious commitments. He meets and marries a woman named Zipporah. She becomes his wife. She was the daughter of one of the priests of Midian. He has a child. That child's name is Gershom. And uh, that name, Gershom, means I have been a sojourner, a wanderer, in a foreign land. And while Moses is in the wilderness, he becomes a shepherd. He becomes somebody who tends flocks and wanders along with sheep. And so for decades upon decades, some people think 40 years, this was Moses' new life, a shepherd amongst the Midianites. He had made his home in the wilderness. And so I can only imagine that as years went by, his old life sort of faded more and more into the rearview mirror. He gave less and less thought to his own people and the suffering that they were enduring at the hands of Egypt. He may have even thought, well, that's somebody else's problem. It's not my concern any longer. That was his old life. Moses was finished with all of that, and it seems as if he was happy to retire quietly in the wilderness, apathetic to God and apathetic to the needs of his own people. But of course, we learn that God had bigger plans for Moses. God wasn't content to leave Moses to simply retire and play out the string of his life in the wilderness. So our passage tells us that Moses is shepherding one day on Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai, which is going to play a big scene later on in this story. And it's there in the wilderness that God visits him. He visits him in the form of a bush that does not burn. And he says to Moses in verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. In effect, God is saying to Moses, Moses, it's time to stop riding the bench. 
It's time to get in the game. You've spent too many years in the wilderness. Now it is time to follow my call. I am knocking on the door of your heart. It is time to answer. Now Moses, understandably, is full of all sorts of objections. He's got a real problem with what God wants him to do. Objective, objection number one is the simple enormity of the task. Egypt is one of the most wealthy and influential nations in the ancient world at this point. They have the strongest military and technological force of any other people in the ancient world. And the Hebrews had been their slaves for hundreds of years. The job is just too big, God. It's just too big. You see, the wilderness had sort of dulled Moses' perception of what God was really able to do. To accomplish. Objection number two had to deal with Moses' past. Of course, he says to God, the Hebrews are not going to believe me when I go back and say these things. After all, God, look at my past. Look at, look at what I've done. I'm a murderer. I'm a fugitive. My, my past mistakes have eroded away my usefulness. I'm not a useful tool for this because of what I have done in my past. So if objection number two had to do with his past, objection number three had to do with his present. And if you keep reading in chapter four, the excuses from Moses come fast and furious at this point. Five times he goes back to God saying, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, this is not me, not me. Uh, They won't believe me. They won't listen to me. Verse one, I'm not an eloquent speaker. Verse 10, In effect, Moses is saying, here are all my inadequacies, here are all the reasons I cannot do this. And then eventually in verse 13, Moses lays all his cards on the table and says very simply, oh Lord, please send someone else. Please send someone else. God, leave me alone. Let me retire in the wilderness with my sheep. You see, the the wilderness had made Moses a little bit complacent when it came to his own spiritual life. But of course, God would have none of it. And so God promises, Moses, you're going to go and I will be with you. And of course, God was with Moses every single step of the way. If you keep reading in the book of Exodus, God is with Moses every single step of the way. Sure, there are moments where Moses had to look back on his old life, wishing he was back in the wilderness thinking about how great that was. Life wasn't too hard back then, but God still uses Moses, a reluctant man. He still uses Moses to liberate his people from their Egyptian enslavement. Now, what does all this have to do with us? Well, friends, if you come to the church and if you come a lot, you'll hear a lot of really wonderful things. The good news of the gospel is one of the things that we talk about all the time. We talk about the benefits and the blessings that come from the gospel of knowing what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And all those things are right and good, and we should talk about them a lot. We talk about how the fact that by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven from our sins, we're restored, we're we're given the righteousness of Jesus Christ The gospel tells us that we who have been estranged and exiled have been brought in and adopted by God. We have the the hope and the reality of heaven, paradise, that awaits us on the other side of this life. 
We have a relationship with God who will never give up on us, a God who's never going to leave us, never forsake us. Nothing will ever separate us from his love. Amazing and beautiful benefits that come from a relationship with Jesus Christ. But one of the things we often forget is this. With all the blessings of the gospel also come the call of the gospel. There are two things that intimately go together. To only focus on the benefits of the gospel is akin to being content to make it on the team, but never really wanting to go in the game. Of getting the uniform, of sitting on the bench, but never really wanting to get into the game. So the question is, maybe God is calling you out of the wilderness of apathy and into the game. Yes, God has granted you all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms, but he has also placed a call on your life that you cannot be lukewarm about. If you are in Christ, then God has placed a call on your life that cannot be ignored. Well, what is that call? Well, the scriptures tell us that you and I, if we are Christ's, then we are called to share the gospel in word and in deed, to make disciples, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Just as Moses was called to be an ambassador of the Hebrews to the Egyptians, God calls you and I to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We're called to be servants of the Most High God, to live for Him and His will and His desires. Just as Moses was called to declare liberation from enslavement, you and I are called to declare to the world that there can be a liberation from the enslavement to sin and death. You and I are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. But instead, what do we do? Instead, we would often rather hang on to our own comfort and our own apathy. Often we're content to live on the sidelines watching the professionals do the work of the kingdom. We're content with having our theology correct and all our I's dotted and our T's crossed, but we never translate that theology into action. We've become victim to the listless vice of acedia. We're just like Moses. We want to be the clay that tells the potter what the reality is really all about. We, like Moses, can be overwhelmed by the enormity of the task. God, the world just feels so broken and dark right now. It just feels beyond hope. The task is too big. Some of us can feel really overwhelmed about our past. God, there's no way I can be used considering all the things that I've done in my past. Maybe you even feel limited by your present. God, I'm not a people person. God, I'm not an eloquent speaker. I fumble over my words. Or what if me living out your call threatens my job or my popularity or my social status? We have just as many excuses for God as Moses did. God, can I just enjoy the blessings and ignore the call? But God simply reminds us, go. He doesn't even, notice he doesn't even answer Moses' excuse, really. He just says, go 
and I will be with you. Go, and I will be with you. So what might God be calling you to do? Are you stuck in the wilderness of Assyria? Does your faith feel listless and slothful? Are your affections towards God half-hearted? Do they feel divided? It might not be a burning bush, but God does stand at the door of our hearts and he knocks. He wants us to follow him into this great work of advancing his kingdom. Sure, it scares us. Sure, it feels overwhelming. And sure, we have moments where we wonder where the cost will be too much. But he promises to be with us every step of the way. In fact, he even promises to take our weaknesses and make them the occasion for his strength. So here's the challenge. Pray today. Pray to God. God, let me hear the knock. What do you want me to do? There was this uh, awful scene in a great movie. Uh, it was a, it's an old movie now called Saving Private Ryan. Maybe you've seen it before. A great World War II, uh, uh, World War II epic film made by Tom Hanks and all that. And I love the movie, but there's one scene that's awful. And every time it comes on, I can't watch it. Uh, and it's a scene where there's this one character that they follow all throughout the movie uh, who tends to be a character who is captured by his fears, full of anxiety, um, uh, full of fears, um, very apprehensive. And there's one scene where his friend is slowly dying at the hands of a German. And instead of coming to his rescue, this man is captured by his fears and his inadequacies and his uh, anxieties and refuses to respond. And the German man dies. It's such a gut-wrenching scene. I can't watch it more than once because what I want to do is reach through the television screen and shake that guy and say, come to the rescue of your friends. But here's the truth. I'm a lot like that character in that story. I allow fears and excuses to keep me from following the call of God. I'd rather stay safely in the blah rather than step boldly into the call. Maybe you're like me when it comes to those things. Well, friends, God stands at the door of our heart and he knocks. He wants to pour his blessing into our lives, yes, but he also wants us to be the hands and feet of the kingdom of God. What might God be calling you to do? How might he be rousing you from the wilderness of a spiritual sleep? Let's pray.